0: It would be good if you could open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be looking, um, just do a one-off message today on the story of the temptation of Jesus, but I really want to only pick up on one theme. Um, It's on page 1424 in the church Bibles, the Brown Bibles. You're welcome to go grab one if you don't already have one. I want to read to you actually from uh, just a couple of verses from the end of chapter 3, which kind of set the context for... What happens here, uh, the baptism of Jesus, it says from verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I'll give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I felt... um, It's something of a burden to want to speak to you from this passage today and just break our series in the Gospel of Mark because of the fact that it's the first Sunday in the year and because I think that the beginning of each new year does mark an exceptional opportunity in your life to consider your life and to consider um, decisions and um, opportunities and where you want to go and the things you want to change. Uh, I know that this is easy fodder, for us to laugh at ourselves, because the reality is that most of the commitments people make at the beginning of the year quickly get forgotten and broken, don't they? I don't know the stats, but it's something, some ridiculous number who take out the gym membership at the 1st of January by like the 21st or something. They're no longer attending, and (laughs) You know, I know a lot of you have probably failed a bunch of your resolutions already. I realized, you know, we're talking about the community Bible reading. I realized on the 2nd of January, I was already a day behind on my Bible reading. (laughs) This is is normal. This is human nature. So we recognize the limitations of the decisions we make in the areas in which we want to change. And we also recognize that you can, you know, the, the process of transformation and change is not, it's not like you just get one little opportunity, one window in the year in which you can look at your life and, And hope that you can change. Praise God, He is at work in us all the time. We are His workmanship, we are His project. The Bible tells us that He is determined to change us, to bring us through to perfection, to completion. And I take comfort in that because I'm so frustrated with myself so much of the time. God is committed to me, He's committed to you. That is something that you should take deep, deep encouragement from. But all of that said, I also believe that there are moments in life when you engage more deeply. In, in, in looking carefully. You do retrospection. You consider your life to this moment. Is it, is it going as you'd hoped? Are there things that you need to change? Do you need to take stock of? Are there things you need to repent of if you want to see change in your life? You do introspection where you look inside. And you look at your own heart. You look at the motivations and desires and um, the dreams as well, the positive things. And you, and you consider whether these are pleasing to God. And you also do prospection. You think forward. You think, well, if God gives me another day, week, another year to come, how do I want to grow? And this is a very important process, I think. And there are certain moments in life when that experience becomes more intense, doesn't it? And the turning of a year, for me at least, is always one of those moments. Now, I, I want to stress I think that's a vital thing to do. Uh, vital, regardless of, in a sense, of everything else I want to say today. That in and of itself is something that you should consider. And I say that because I, whether you're not a Christian or a Christian, all of us have to take stock from time to time. Because there, there's a great danger in life that you, you carry on unreflectively. What I mean is that we, we're creatures of habit. We're creatures who act often unconsciously. Who are caught in certain ideas and narratives and um, and desires that we we almost imbibe without thinking. And if you continue on unreflectively, then your life will just cont- carry on in the same direction, won't it? One of the things I wish, you know, I'm so grateful we do the the Salt Live events, and so many people come here who are not Christian because I think, well, it's wonderful that you are wrestling with these questions because it seems to me that by and large when you when you look at a lot of people across our city and it may be true for you as well that that there is often a reluctance to stop to stop really think about the deeper questions in life because we just get head down and we just keep plodding forward but that's not just true for you if you're not a Christian it's also true in the lives of Christians isn't it that it's possible to to be caught in the same the same habits, the same ways of thinking, uh, mindlessly carrying on with the same uh, activities and never stop and never pause and never consider how does God want me to change course or does he want me to change course? There's a verse in one of the Psalms that says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In other words, the consciousness of the The shortness of life, that every day is a precious opportunity, should engender a wise way of thinking about how you live that life. And if it's true that you should count your days, it's also perhaps more true that you should count your years and think about the changes that God would want to bring about, that you may get a heart of wisdom, that you may start again if necessary. This is the great heart of the Christian faith, that you get to start again. When you become a Christian, God wipes the slate clean. You start afresh. Every day, even if you're caught in sin as a Christian, you get to start again. The Bible says that his mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. If that were not true, I would have given up in despair long ago as a Christian. But His mercies are new every morning. How precious that each morning and each year gives us a new opportunity to recommit, to determine, to want to live our lives for Lord, for the Lord and for Him alone. I want to then think about that with you this morning, uh, this evening, I should say, and um, I want to particularly there was a, I used to work in an old building an old church building in my old church. And there were many doors throughout this great cavernous building. And uh, the, one of the the vergers, the janitor, had he had a massive bunch of keys. I mean, it was, like, it was like out of a cartoon. He had one of those huge hoops with like hundreds of keys on them. Maybe not hundreds, that would be an exaggeration, but he had <laughs> dozens of keys. And um, <laughs> the amazing thing about these keys was that there was one or two keys on that that ring, which it could actually open most of the locks in the building. Why he carried the other ones, I have no idea. <laughs> but, um, but they were the master keys. And when you're thinking about the change project that is your life, a lot of people will offer you all kinds of wisdom about change. Uh, Christians have wisdom to offer. There's wisdom in the world. There's wisdom all over the place about change. And these are like keys for opportunities in your life. But there is a master key, which I want to consider with you. Which is the power, the potency of the word of God and its effect upon your life. And I want to do it thinking about really just the early part of this story of Jesus' temptation. Because the one thing that seems to me to be definitive about the life of Christ in this engagement with Satan. What is definitive in how he acts and how he responds is his relationship to God's word. And that ought to be the same for you and me. It's not like we're living a different type of life. We have the same word. And that's what I want us to think about. I want you to consider the fact that the Bible speaks to identity, satisfaction, and purity. Identity, satisfaction, and purity. Let's think about this first thing, that it speaks to the issue of identity. That only God's word can tell you who you are. When you've read this story, I'm sure some of you have read it many times, when you count the temptations, how many temptations do you count here? For a long time, I'd assumed there were just the three, but when you start to read between the lines, there's more going on there. It's a little bit more subtle than that. The first temptation, in a sense, that Satan presents to Jesus is to question his sense of identity. Twice in the way he addresses Jesus, he says, if you are the son of God. And ask yourself, why is he doing this? I think it doesn't take much to really figure that out. Jesus is at his most dangerous in his sense of certainty about his identity, which is why I read the story of the baptism there, that the voice from heaven came You're my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Immediately, in order to seek to trip Jesus up, Satan begins to erode or desires to erode that confidence. He wants to plant seeds of doubt about his own sense of identity and the certainty of who he is. And he wants also to create a neediness in Jesus to prove himself in that moment, to react to Satan's agenda, I suppose. Satan wants to control the agenda and Jesus would react to it in his desire to approve himself, to establish himself, to display who he is. And so he'd be playing Satan's game. Why is this important for you and me? I think because in some ways the problem of identity or the issue of identity lies at the root of so many of the problems in our lives. Or at least we can understand our problems through that particular lens. You can look at it through that lens. Let me give you a few examples to tell you what I mean. For some of you, many of us maybe are prone to a need to overwork. It might be expressed as long hours. It might be expressed as avoidance of work at times when you you feel the pressure and so you escape it altogether. It can be expressed as... Chronic stress and anxiety that bubbles under the surface. and You get that, that strong sense of you know, not wanting to go back to work after you've had a great time on holiday and eaten chocolate and nuts for <laughs> two weeks and all that kind of stuff. And he asks, well, why is it that, that there's so much dread and hope and aspiration and ambition bound up with our work life? Of course, I would never deny that this is important, that this aspect of life is God-given. But... It seems to me that part of the reason that we we put so much weight on it, especially in our context, in our day and age, is because we have have been told this story that who you are is so much about what you achieve in life. You build your identity through the things you do in life. It wasn't true for every generation before us that they thought that way or assumed that. That's a story we drink with our mother's milk. You're special and you're here to change the world. And so that's incredible pressure we put on ourselves and to fail that expectation from our mother or from whoever it came from is huge. But you see, it's all about identity. Another example would be a relational one. You think about how so many of us us are controlled by the need for affirmation. Now, I think the human heart, we are wired, we're hardwired to need the love of others. God made us relational beings. But you know how easily that Desire to give and receive love tips into something slightly more insidious when you you need the love of others in a way that actually becomes almost crippling. It can take the form of a kind of social anxiety, the fear among crowds. It can be the opposite, the need to perform when you're among people. It can be the control of social media, which has its power through affirmation, doesn't it, The, the number of likes and The amount of approval you get is what keeps you going back to the thing. Wherever it takes a hold on you, a lot of this is to do with the issue of identity in our lives. We're controlled by these things because we need a sense of who we are and we need other people to tell us who we are. It may also be true in the area of your possessions, to give another example. Why is it that we feel this urgency to dress particular ways or to own certain things or to present ourselves to the world in a particular way with certain possessions to our name. It's It's not need in any physical sense, generally speaking, is it? It's more of a spiritual, soulish need. The need to establish an identity, to say who you are to the world around you. And so the things that you own end up Owning you, that said in Fight Club. And they, they, they have a control on you. And it all is swirling around this issue of identity. And it seems to me that when we're caught in, we're very vulnerable and we're not sure who we are and what our place is in this world. And if we just have to build that for ourselves, we are especially vulnerable. And it seems to me that the Bible offers you, it offers you, a robust, solid, unshakable sense of who you are. And that that changes everything about the way you can approach life. For one thing, it sets you in a storyline. To read and understand the Bible is not to understand it as a bunch of laws layered one on top of another, like regulations poured on us from the, the EU or from the government. It is not that. What it is is a It's a narrative, it's a story in which you are now a player. The world is telling us stories all the time. We're imbibing stories. Some of them are positive and some of them are negative. We have the positive ones of human progress and and how we are going to make this world better through science and through modernism and all these kinds of things. And then we have the stories of human destructiveness and the death of the planet and how we've we've passed the tipping point of no return and everything's going to get broken and we're going to kill all the animals and all the rest of it. And we live in these stories all the time almost simultaneously and they control, they control us right down to the level of our day-to-day decisions because as humans, we cannot think of our lives except within storylines. All of our lives are living out stories and the decisions you make and the ambitions you have. Now what happens to a person when The biblical story becomes the most powerful controlling story in your life. When you read of God's great plan for creation and of the crashing fall of mankind and then of his redeeming power through the sending of his son. And then of the mission to redeem the nations and bring them into the kingdom of God. If you place yourself, if that is the most potent controlling storyline of your Bible, what does that do to your day to day priorities? And your sense of who you are in this world. It makes a very earthed difference, doesn't it? You think about how the Bible gives you a sense of place and of belonging. The need to feel an identity in terms of an acceptance and belonging among others is a very potent need within us so interesting that when Christ begins his ministry, before he's done anything, the Father says to him, you're my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And it seems to me that's a picture of what the Christian life is about. Before you've achieved anything for God, he takes hold of you, he lavishes you with his affection, he says you're mine, he says you belong. And at that point, The need to prove something, the need to build something in this life diminishes because you live in response to the grace and the goodness of the Lord God who saved you. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is this, that knowing who you are has both a freeing power and a binding power. It frees you from false obligations. Because the world is constantly layering upon you one priority after another. This is who you must be. This is what you must do. This is how to live the good life and so on. One of the things that strikes you about the Lord Jesus when he goes through these three years of the ministry that are recorded in these gospels is how utterly free he is from the expectations of the people around him. You have never seen a more free person. He constantly shatters people's categories of what is appropriate behavior in any given situation. Sometimes through his incredible tenderness and willingness to step into the brokenness of dark people's lives. Having around him, as you see, the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Other times, disturbing the peace as when he turned over the tables in the temple, other times lambasting the, the religious authorities with the most sharp words as he cuts them to the very heart. And you think, how can this man constantly break our expectations of what is, what is a righteous life and how to live it and yet never make a false step? And the answer is because he has absolute freedom from any sense of people's obligations on him about how we ought to behave because of his complete, robust sense of who he is, that he is the Son of God. And a Christian is called to walk in a similar pattern, I think. But you cannot, you cannot get a sense of who you are and in what story you live and before whom you live unless you live in this book. Unless this, these words, this narrative... God's own revelation controls the way you think about who you are. It frees you from certain obligations, but then it binds you to new ones. To believe what God has to say about this world changes your priorities from the ground up. You can't chase the same, often meaningless, things when you see the world as God sees it, right? And when you see yourself within that world, and understand how futile so many of your passions and desires and energies have been up to, up to date. That's the first thing. It speaks to identity. Here's the second. It speaks to satisfaction. Only God's word can feed your soul. We're just focusing in on this, this first interaction of Jesus and Satan here. Where Satan says to him, if you were the son of God command these stones to become loaves of bread now i wonder if you've ever asked yourself the question what is the sin here because the other the other two the, the later temptations that come you know throw yourself off the temple bow down and worship me you look at those and you think well i'm pretty sure i know why those things are wrong but with this one turn the stones into bread i don't think it's immediately obvious what the sin is and it seems to me that to answer that, part of, part of the answer is, of course, that Satan is seeking to, to go Jesus into living a life of reaction to his agenda instead of instead of going about his own agenda and being controlled by the Spirit. But it also seems to me to be about this whole issue of desire. When you ask yourself, what is sin? Sin and I think this can be said of Just about every sin, I think, if you think about it and you break it apart. That we are chasing good things, good ends, things that God has made. But we chase them through illegitimate means. It's true of sexual sin. God created sex and he made it good. It becomes sinful because we warp, warp it by making the desire ultimate and then trying to chase it by some illegitimate way. It's true of materialism. Things God made, he made as good gifts to us. This planet is a good planet. And the things in it are beautiful. The things that humans create are exceptional, often, and wonderful. And they're therefore our enjoyment. God gave us these abilities. But when they become the object of our desire, and when we seek them through illegitimate means, that's when they become sinful, right? Now, where am I going? I think that what Jesus shows us here, and how he responds to this temptation to eat something. Because we know, Lord knows he was hungry. And he could have done it. He could have turned the bread into the stones. But what he's, his answer starts to reveal to us is something that's at the very heart of the Christian faith. And what it means to grow in maturity in your faith with God. To grasp this, friends, is to, is to see all of your spiritual life through new eyes. And it's, a, it's this, that God's desire for you. Is to stop seeking joy in the wrong places. And to start seeking it in him. The whole Christian life. Is the fight for joy. In your relationship with God. I say that because I think that human beings. All of our behavior. Can be understood. As a happiness quest. We're all basically hedonists at the root. We're all seeking the most happiness through the fastest routes. And everything we do can be explained through that lens. Even the, even the darkest things that we do, and even when people commit suicide, it's ultimately a bid to choose the happiest route when they see options in front of them. All of the decisions we make can be understood that way. What, makes, what will give me the deepest sense of happiness and satisfaction? That doesn't mean we always make the right decisions, does it? doesn't mean we always find what we are looking for in those decisions the happiness the satisfaction that we we wanted but that's basically what life is and so the christian life is understanding that god wants you to find your joy your happiness your satisfaction in him and not in the things he made primarily and not just that you'll find happiness in him and let me let me let me stress this and put it in bold and underline this for you. It's more than that. It's that you'll find your first happiness in him. We need to ask the question, how do we get it? How do you experience joy in God that, that changes your relationship to this world? And I want to say, sometimes you get it passively. What I mean by that is, there are moments in the Christian life when god just invades and does things in your heart it can be experiences it can be seasons when you are you are overwhelmed with the goodness of god and it seems like it came from nowhere it wasn't like you were chasing anything god just takes a hold of your heart by the work of his spirit through experiences through exposure to his word something in your life and it's passive. It wasn't like you chose this. It just happened to you. And those are precious moments. It's, you, know, you can't even predict when those moments will happen. But most of the Christian life is not the passive thing. It's the deliberate, the active thing. It's, it's knowing how on a day-to-day basis we are meant to find our joy and satisfaction in God so that we are satiated by Him. There was a, a German who moved to Bristol in the 1800s and who became famous because he established and ran a great orphanage for thousands of children and all of it provided for by people's generosity through that man's prayers, not even through his asking. He just got on his knees each morning and asked God for provision for the kids and provision flowed in. His name was George Muller and he had a vibrant As you can imagine, to live that level of faith, to take upon himself the responsibility of so many lives. He must have had an exceptional walk with God. But he said this about his walk with God. He said, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing I need to do when I wake up, the most important thing that ought to come before everything else is to find soul happiness in God. Why? Because otherwise you seek it elsewhere, which is where things go wrong for us, right? The Psalm, uh, Psalm 34 says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste. Enjoy, experience, he's saying. Savor the fact that God is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. God wants you to enjoy him and he he wants more than that. He wants it to be the case that he comes first in your experience of joy and happiness. That he is the main source that you go to. I think that's how I understand Christ's answer to Satan here. When he says, look, you could turn the, bread in, you could turn the stones into bread. And, and Jesus responds and says, man shall not live by bread alone. Of course, he's not saying we don't need the bread. He's saying that it has to come in its right place beneath. Experience satisfaction to my appetites with God. So he says, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Just one experience that I think kind of captures what I'm talking about here. Often, when I come home, if I'm thirsty, or it's dinner time, you sit down, um, the food might be a little bit thirst-provoking, a bit salty, and you think, I just really need a drink right now. When When I'm particularly thirsty, that's when I'm most likely to want to reach into the fridge and grab one of those cool cans of IPA. You know when the condensation just dribbles down the side of the can and you just think, that, and it's cold and it just hits the back of your throat and just you feel satiated, you feel satisfied. But I've also realized, and you know, it's important for my health that I you know, don't reach in too often and that you, know, you have to have a certain discipline about this. It's important for our, our budget, it's important for many things. And it, I've realized that if I very quickly drink a glass of water... That seemingly overwhelming desire to drink the beer, I don't have a problem, don't worry, but that desire, <laughs> that desire, I don't think so, that desire immediately diminishes. And it's like, oh, I can deal with that, actually, I'm fine. Because what I've done instead is I've, I've satisfied my thirst. And so even if the beer is nice, it's no longer necessary in the same way, okay? And this is a picture of what I'm talking about here when i say: not only should we find happiness in God, but we should find our first happiness in him. That you need to quench your thirst in God so that nothing else quite has the same hold on you. God wants to be first in our lives. There's a beautiful, beautiful picture of this. In the Old Testament, you'll know, those of you who, who know anything of the, the story of Israel, how God rescued them, put them in a nation, established them as a nation, and things were going wonderfully, and then they weren't. They had their temple, Solomon's temple, an extraordinary building, one of the seven wonders of the world. But then they started wandering away in their hearts from God. And when, when God's people wander, and when they became idolaters, he dealt with them. And one of the most harsh and definitive Judgments they experienced was the exile into Babylon in 586 BC. And Nebuchadnezzar conquered them and brought a mass of the population over to Babylon. And there they lived, you know, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. You remember the psalm. And they lived there in chastisement and discipline for decades. And then the Babylonians were conquered by another empire, the Persians. And then the new Persian emperor, Cyrus, made a decision. He said, these people can all go home. And so they went home. But upon returning home, they found that the city that they loved, the jewel of their hearts, Jerusalem, was in ruins. And the temple itself was in ruins. Which meant, of course, that they had no way of, as a people, relating to God, which is the very thing they knew they needed to restore, Because that's where it had all gone wrong in the first place. But you see the priorities in Ezra chapter 3. Because the first thing they do is. The whole thing is a mess. They go right to the heart of the temple complex. They go right into the, the most special place. Which is where the altar is. And they rebuild the altar. And then they start making sacrifices. The rest of the temple is in ruins. It tells us that. It's only later. They decide to start work on the foundations and the walls. But it's like. It's such a wonderful picture of what it is God wants from us. There are moments in life when you realize that for whatever reason, things have got out of hand, there's chaos all around you. It could, could be because you you haven't been walking with God, or it could be because the circumstances of life are overwhelming, or it could be because you've been hit by some grievous suffering, or something's happened to you and everything feels like it's just falling apart. And you ask yourself, what is my priority here? And I think it's very clear. God wants you to get back to the place Of worship and of intimacy with him. Before you even think about rebuilding the other stuff. He has to be first. Even if you never get to the other stuff. Even if the walls never go up. You never quite restore order in your life. The chaos is never quite dampened down. If the worship's there. At least you can know God. And you can know happiness. And you can know joy. Jesus is that man. He's the man of Psalm 1, isn't he? He's the one who embodies this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Not he knows the law of the Lord. Not he reads it diligently and with great discipline. Not he's really determined to follow the law of the Lord. It's something different to that. He says his delight, his satisfaction, his happiness, he experiences pleasure from knowing God through his word. That is what makes this man like a tree planted by streams of water that gets, bears its fruit in its season. Its leaves don't wither. All that he does, it prospers This is what we're seeing when we see the enemy come to him and say, turn those stones into bread. And Jesus says, I live by the word of God. I'm not vulnerable to your temptations because my heart is full. I've quenched my thirst a long time ago and I quenched it today. Finally, it speaks to purity. Identity satisfaction, and purity. Only God's word ultimately can change your life. What we're seeing here in the temptations of Jesus is a rerun of what Satan did to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's a kind of second time around. But where in the Garden of Eden God's very clear word was undermined and turned upside down and supplanted with Satan's suggestions and ideas and deceptions, which confused and befuddled Eve and then Adam and then set them on the wrong course, you see how Satan cannot get a toehold, he cannot get an entry point into Christ's mind or life because with every temptation Jesus rebuts him with the word of God. All of them, all the responses come from the book of Deuteronomy. He, whether he'd been spending time in the book of Deuteronomy recently, or whether he just knew it off by heart, I don't know. But his, his soul was filled, and the word of God not only was in him, but it became a weapon in his hands, right? That he wielded effectively against Satan and his temptations. And I just want to ask this question as we, on this last point. How does the Word of God help you to grow in purity? Because surely that should be the aim of all of our lives, right? We want to be changed into conformity to becoming more like Jesus. That's the Christian life. Well, how does it happen? And what does the Word of God, what role does it play to, to make you more like Jesus? And I'll give you a few suggestions. I think first, perhaps most obviously, but also somewhat overlooked, is the fact that it tells you what to do and what not to do, and I want to stress that because often we can look at one another and think, "Do any of us actually read the Bible?" <laughs> Even the simplest things we can get wrong, can't we? Whether it's through hard heartedness in us, or a kind of we explain stuff away, or simply because we're ignorant of what God has said. And it seems to me also that there are so many decisions and aspects of godliness in life that that require real subtlety to understand what is God's will in any given situation. Give the example of, of how you handle your possessions and wealth. I don't know if you've ever given much thought to what is a godly approach To possessions and wealth. I think that the Bible's teaching on this is much richer and more complex than most of you might have assumed. Most people would think, well, the Bible's teaching is we give it all away. That's not really possible, so I'm not going to, so I'll just reluctantly agree not to obey the Bible. (laughs) Actually, it's, it's so much more complex than that. It teaches us about how God gives wealth and the reward of a righteous life is is wealth, but also that we have the great privilege of understanding that everything in our hands is to be stewarded for his kingdom. And that we are meant, we're called to give. So then the questions are, well, how much do you save? And should you have a pension? And, and should you provide for your children to go to university? And all the complexities of how you handle this righteously. And do I have a responsibility for this person next to me? Do I have a responsibility for the person who's on the other side of the world who's suffering at this moment? And it really, it boggles your mind. But it seems to me that you cannot answer these questions unless you... Immerse yourself in, in the scriptures and begin to wrestle with what is the heart of God and how is he teaching me to live. And that Christian maturity does not come by any shortcuts. It comes from constant exposure to knowing the mind and the heart of God as he's shown it to us in his word. It tells you what to do and what not to do. Here's the second thing. It has a slow, long-term, transformative effect upon you. A couple of verses which just sort of underline or enforce what I'm wanting to say here. In Romans 12, you remember how Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world. As Eugene Peterson memorably put it, he said, Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. We're feeling that squeezing all the time, aren't we? controls every aspect of how we think, dress, relate, all those things. The world has ruts and culture and all these things that squeeze you into its mold. And Paul says, Don't be squeezed. But, he says... Be transformed or metamorphosized. I'm struggling with my words tonight, aren't I? Changed. Be changed, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, God doesn't just want to teach you what to do and what not to do. He actually wants to change the way you think. Out of which flows a life. That pleases God. In Ephesians 5.26. In that section where Paul's talking about. How Christ loved the church. Gave himself up for the church. It then says that he might sanctify her. Which is to clean her up and make her holy. Having cleansed her by the washing of water. With the word. What I'm trying to describe for you here is the fact that you, know, you, don't, you don't just want to know God's word in terms of what it says in a, in a very intellectual head level. What, what we really want is to become different people, to be transformed by God. You think about it this way. Think about how if you were to meet the misfortune of having a heart attack one day and you're found unconscious on the floor, and someone calls the emergency services, but you know, you had, if you had ahead of time the option to decide who was going to attend to you in that moment, would it be your friend who happens to be a book editor, who has been editing basic life support and has read the thing 30, 40 times, gone through every sentence multiple times, understands it inside out, but never touched another person? Or would you prefer the paramedic who's attended hundreds of cardiac arrests? You see, what I'm saying is, it's possible to know things up here. But what we really want is to be so changed, through, almost through muscle memory, if you can think of it like that, that to live a godly life becomes the most instinctive, desirable way to live. And friends, I don't think there's any other way that happens than being immersed in, submerged in, completely drowning in the Word of God. There was a preacher who lived um, not far who preached not far from here in Eltham and Castle in the, ni- in the 1800s called Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon. And he was a great fan of a- another man who'd lived a couple of centuries before that called John Bunyan. John Bunyan was one of the Puritans who'd been imprisoned and who'd composed some of the greatest works uh, books in-, in history, including Pilgrim's Progress. An absolute groundbreaking piece of literature on any measurement but especially for Christians. And Spurgeon used to go back to to John Bunyan time and time again to find encouragement when he was low, like particularly at the end of a Sunday when he felt like he hadn't preached too well. He'd get his wife, Joanna, to read to him from Pilgrim's Progress, and he'd find his soul lifted, so bear this one in mind, sweetheart. (laughs) And um, he said about John Bunyan, I love these words, just listen to this. He said, read anything of his And you'll see that it is almost like the reading of the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with scripture. Prick him anywhere, his blood is Bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows through him. This is what we're seeing happening with Jesus here. There were no shortcuts to this. It demanded diligence, passion, perseverance, learning, and work. But the Lord Jesus set himself to know the word of God. And so was equipped when the day came. How does it change you? It tells you what to do what not to do. It has a slow, long-term, transformative effect upon you. But here's the last thing. I think the most important thing, it causes you to love the hero. Remember I was saying to you that the Bible is a storyline. and In any story you need your heroes, but there is one who towers above them all, and that's Jesus himself. And it's through the word of God and exposure to his self-disclosure to us in that word that we grow to love Jesus because ultimately, friend, the life that God is calling you to live is not going to be one. Like the way I cook. You ever see me cook? I'm like, I read the ingredients, and then I check them, and then I read it again, and then I measure things out one by one. and get everything arrayed on the sideboard. And it's just absolute torture for my wife to watch. And some people you live the Christian life like that. It's like all strain and no pleasure. <laughs> and constant checking and pulse checking and all this kind of Ultimately, ultimately, what we want is to to live a a life of responsive love to who Jesus is. It's passion, isn't it? That's what I see when my wife's in the kitchen. Passion. (laughs) (laughs) I shouldn't say these things. This is not law-based living, is what I'm saying. It's not the kind of, it's not the kind of you know, concentrate really hard and, and, tick and, and figure out what is the Christian life. It's, it's the life that, that blooms under the sunshine of knowing that you're loved by the God who made you and responding in love to him. In Romans 6, I think it's never more aptly put Than this. That Paul is wrestling with. He's wrestling with the whole issue. Of how we live a godly life. And he talks about our freedom. Through this salvation. But he says. But thanks be to God. That you who were once slaves of sin. Have become obedient from the heart. To the standard of teaching. To which you were committed. And this happens friends. This obedience from the heart happens. As your heart is captivated by the author of this word, the hearer of this word, the savior who's lived the life you could not live, who paid the price you could not pay, who died on your behalf and who has now welcomed you into his kingdom. The subject of these pages, my encouragement, if you haven't already understood this so far, is to set yourself to be immersed in this word, to find a way to be in it and submerged in it that God would change your life in this coming year. Amen? Amen? Amen. All right, why don't you stand? I want to pray. I want to ask God to just move in our hearts. I would want him to lift off any sense of, of um, you know, fear and, uh, and drudgery or any of that kind of stuff. And in its place, give us a sense of hope and anticipation. We have to eat something, right? We have to eat something. It's true of your physical appetites and it's also true of your spiritual appetites. We're all eating, even if you haven't paid attention to what it is you're eating. Mm. Usually it's magazines and Netflix and conversation with friends. But what God is calling us to is to be more thoughtful about how you feed your appetites. And that's how you grow in godliness. (laughs) Father, we want to ask you that as we are called to be like your son... That you would conform us into his image and make us more like him. Lord, and I pray particularly that you'd take away fear and anxiety around uh, the study and the reading of the word of God. And in its place, put hope and anticipation and excitement. And Lord, I pray that we would have quick wins in this, Lord. That as people open the Bible more diligently or perhaps even for the first time. They'd experience the, the effect of the spirit upon their hearts, Lord. Bringing words to life, changing us through your amazing scriptures, we pray. And ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.